listening to the Save the Marriage podcast. Your marriage can be saved and strengthened if you have the right information. Join Dr. Lee Bauckham as he explores ways for you to improve your relationship and your life, starting right now. Hey, this is Lee Balkum, and you are listening to the Save the Marriage podcast. This is the podcast that I designed to help you save and restore your relationship no matter where it is. And every now and then, I have a guest come on. In fact, today I have two guests. I have a married couple. They are the authors of a great book called The 80-80 Marriage. Nate and Kaylee Klimp are the authors of The 80-80 Marriage, and uh, they are both just really great people. Nate's a writer, a philosopher, an entrepreneur, and he is the co-author of the best-selling book, Start Here, but he also has an MA in philosophy and a PhD from Princeton University. Kaylee is one of the nation's leading experts on small group dynamics and leadership development. She's also a TEDx speaker, the author of three books, and is also a high-level coach with lots of people uh, and very successful people. And they are just a, a fine couple together. But this idea of the 80-80 marriage so fit into what I talk about that I wanted to bring them on and talk about that. So while we're discussing this book, you're going to learn about the three models that there are of marriage and why the one that most people are living in now doesn't work. That whole idea of you know being 50-50 equals in a marriage, why that doesn't work. And why it's so important that we don't get stuck into an old model trying to kind of cram it into a more recent model, but there's a better model. We talk about that. We talk about why that's so important, how we get stuck in this judgment game, and how we can move behind it. So let's jump in and listen in as I have a chance to have a a good conversation with Nate and Kaylee Klimp. Kelly and Nate, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to be talking about this because a lot of your ideas are very similar to my ideas, but we take a kind of a different view, a different approach to talking about those, which means that some people might find that the two together make a whole lot more sense for them. Now, part of what I want to talk about is the different models of how we do marriage. But before we get there, I think it's always important for us to kind of figure out how we got to here. So I'd love to hear from you on how you discovered this 80-80 model of marriage. Well, so I think the story starts actually way back in our high school chemistry class, where the two of us were really told, you know, achieve your individual potential, be the best that you can be. And we took those instructions to heart. So, you know, off to university, pursuing careers as an executive coach and getting a you know, PhD from Princeton, being a professor, being an entrepreneur. And yet there was this moment where we recognized that the system that we had set up was absolutely fraying at the seams. And so we were looking at each other and sort of saying, okay, there's got to be a different way. And in checking in with our friends, a lot of people were wrestling with this question, how do we stay equals and stay in love? And we couldn't find a good answer, which was really the catalyst for us to go out and do these hundred interviews and start to explore what model would really work for couples today. So I'm kind of curious about what it was. What was that kind of that point? I call it the, the fail point, that point where you knew it just wasn't working and you had to find something else. It sounds ridiculous, but I would say that the close to fail point was an argument that we had about 
who was going to greet the bus when our daughter was a first grader. And so there's this whole argument that happened where at this point I was traveling two or three days a week. And so I was like, well, clearly Nate should do it. (laughs) And according to him, I should do it. And so there was this whole argument around what was fair and what was right and whose turn it was. And really, we recognized that if we kept having the conversation from the perspective of what was best for each of us, we were going to blow up our marriage and also not do what was right by our daughter. Right. Okay. So you hit this as fail point and you do what, you know, couples do. <laughs> they decide to go do a whole research project to discover how they can find their way. It's a great response, but not many people do it. And what you discovered is there are several models uh, of marriage and you were working on what you consider to be an egalitarian model and that wasn't working. So I'm wondering about those three models and In particular, why is it that that egalitarian model got you in trouble? And let's talk about then how you moved forward with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so as you say in the book, we talk about these three primary models of marriage. And those were the three models that we kept seeing over and over again in our life. And the first model is kind of this throwback to the 1950s, you know, think Pleasantville, leave it to Beaver. It's what we call the 80-20 model, where essentially... For the most part, men do about 20%. They're mostly doing, you know, uh, excelling in their career. And women are on the hook for 80%, both of contribution, but also of, you know, keeping the project of marriage and connection going. So there's this kind of like radically unjust model that, you know, certainly our grandparents had. And what was really interesting as we were starting to look at this model is that on the one hand, it seems like this total throwback to the past and almost everybody we talked to espoused, you know, this idea of an egalitarian relationship. We read a Pew study that happened two years ago that 97% of Americans believe in equality in marriage. And yet what was really interesting about this 80-20 model is that the shadows of this model are alive and well. And even the most progressive relationships, as you know, like the data is really clear Women still do more, both in terms of actual labor and emotional labor, and just carrying the mental load of a relationship. So that was kind of the the starting point. We wanted to look at where were we and how does that keep showing up again and again? Hmm. The second model is what we think of as where we are today, where we are now. I like to call it like the cultural center of gravity of marriage. And that's what we call this 50-50 model. And it's based on the idea that we now can say we're equals and we, we should be connected and we should be in love. And the, for the most part, many people have, and at least we had, a very clumsy way of achieving this synthesis of equality and love. And that is, let's just make everything perfectly 50-50 fair. Let's keep score. I'm going to look at how much I do. I'm going to compare it against how much you do. And if we can achieve that perfect balance, we're going to live in marital bliss and all of our problems will be magically solved. That was how we entered marriage 15 years ago. Totally didn't work. And it totally didn't work. It was a complete disaster. It almost blew up our whole marriage. And part of the reason, as we came to find out in researching this book, is that there are all sorts of interesting cognitive biases that emerge when it comes to fairness, that there's availability bias, for example, where, you know, I systematically underestimate what Kaylee does because that information just isn't available to me. I can see everything I've done, Mm -hmm. but when it comes to what she's done, it's pretty fuzzy. 
And it's also really interesting if I think about it from the perspective of, okay, I know every basket of laundry folded, every dishwasher emptied, but when what Nate's doing becomes a little bit unclear, it's also that in the realm of emotional labor, that is often invisible to begin with. So this question of, well, how much time or energy did it take to plan the birthday that we could do outside that was appropriately social distance, but still felt loving? I mean, there's all these questions where you actually can't even calculate how much energy, how much emotion went into planning those things. So really we found that in this realm, especially with availability bias, you were not comparing things on equal playing fields at all. And then you add on top of that, this notion of overestimation where everything that I do, I think is harder and more important. And everything that you do, I think was sort of less hard and less important. Plus I think that everything that I do takes longer. And I think about this, I don't know Lee, if you're a fan of Calvin and Hobbes, but I love Calvin and Hobbes. Mm -hmm. And there's one cartoon where Calvin is measuring his push-ups by how they feel. And so it goes you know, some version of like, you know, one push-up, two push-ups, 20, a hundred. And it feels that way so frequently with housework, with childcare, that what we're reporting to our partners is also totally off base. Yeah, you know, I've seen some repeated research where they ask couples to estimate what percent of the work they do at the house, and they always add it together, and it always exceeds 100%, if that's possible. So the, clearly, there's always an overestimate going on. And you're right, I, I really think that what I decide to do, it's because I think it's always more important than what you're doing. And that gets in the way of the egalitarian piece where I'm trying to contribute but you're overestimating what percentage you're doing. And that ends up being the power struggle, right? Yes. And in that experience of measuring constantly, always finding your partner wanting, overestimating what you're doing, miscalibrating how things are looking even to begin with, what starts to creep in is in this 50-50 model, it starts to get characterized by resentment. And that was part of what we were noticing is that as you're keeping score, sort of, it never works out that your partner looks great. And that in many respects was our catalyst to say, well, let's move beyond 50-50. What else could be possible if we dropped this scorekeeping mentality? Okay. So that's not working. So what did that lead you to? Yeah. So that, that led us directly to 80-80. Um, and basically there are two really significant shifts in 80-80. That one is in the mindset space. So we let go of striving to make things perfectly fair. And instead, we intentionally strive to contribute more. So rather than our 50-50, perfectly even half, it's 80%. Can I do more than my fair share? And see fair definitely in quotes. And I do that from a mindset of radical generosity, that I am intentionally trying to contribute, to appreciate to reveal with this backdrop of gratitude, with this backdrop of generosity. So that's shift number one is really mindset. The second shift is that of structure. So mindset is necessary, but I would argue sort of not sufficient that you can't sort of generosity your way into a perfect you know, union. But then there needs to be the complement of that structure. So rather than the way that at least we were set up, hey, go achieve as an individual, instead it starts to feel more like a shared project 
where there's space to have individual goals. But when you win, it feels like you win together. Instead of individual success, it really feels like shared success. And that sense of shared success is so much more powerful. But let's talk some about how you did that, how you discovered it, and how you tried to implement it. What happened? What was the outcome? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. We like to say that for us anyway, and I think for probably for all couples, this idea of an 80-80 marriage is a practice. And we are constantly falling short of the ideal, but it's a daily practice. And it's something that I think through practice can really have a transformational effect. And I, I think for us, the way this started to show up initially was, as Kaylee was mentioning, we had basically divided our lives up where it was like, Nate's life over here, Kaylee's life over here. We'll figure out how we raise a child and do all the other shared tasks of living together somehow, but it ended up being total chaos. And once we started shifting our mindset and, and this structural shift Kaylee was talking about to shared success, we started asking questions differently. So if we had a big professional decision to make, like let's say I had a big decision to make about my work, instead of me asking what's best for me, Nate, the question became, what's best for us? We actually even named our family. So we named our family Kajona, K-A from Kaylee, N-A from me, J-O from uh, our daughter. And that shifting question, I mean, it sounds subtle, what's best for Nate versus what's best for our family or Kajona, but it was a, a massive shift because all of a sudden we were looking at everything in life from the perspective of how do we win together in this joint enterprise that is our life versus these turf wars we were having around like my career versus your career, my travel schedule versus your travel schedule. Yeah. So I don't expect my guests to understand what I talk about and know what my languaging is, but I talk about a very similar concept. I talk about we thinking that we, it's about us. It's about becoming a we. There's you, there's me, and then there's the we, the, the place where we say we're in this together. We're a team. We work on this together. And so I ask people to think about that as kind of the third option. You know, you got one option that is what's good for you. Second option, what's good for me? Third option, what is good for us? And to think about things in terms of the we, especially around areas like parenting, about money, about sex. So we're really on the same wavelength. We, we kind of describe it a little bit differently, but we're pointing to exactly the same concept, which really means that many times truth can be found in lots of different places that all point to the same concept. Now, you have further pieces of this. In fact, you have some extra details that I think are really important for us to get into. So can we talk a little bit more about generosity and how that fits into this approach for you? Sort of brass tacks tangibly, the first piece of radical generosity and the sort of we mindset that I love the way that you're describing it is contribution. And this is in many respects sort of looking at what are the ways that you can do a radical act of contribution in your relationship. And I think there are a couple things to keep in mind here. One is this doesn't have to be huge. This is not about, you know, now you're going to have an hour long massage or now you're going to make a five course paired meal. This is instead saying, hey, I'm the first one in the kitchen. I'm going to turn on the coffee pot or saying, hey, I noticed that you left your shoes in a place. And instead of, you know, what I did early in our relationship, hiding them from you because I tripped on them, can I put them away in the closet as a, just an act of generosity? I think there's a second piece of contribution that's really interesting, which is around 
knowing what matters to your partner. So in some ways, you could think about this as love languages, like Gary Chapman describes, or as a love map, but it's knowing that if I write Nate a sticky note that says, I love you, and put it on his computer, that means the world to him. If I go out and buy him brand new snow skis, he'd be like, that's awesome, but it actually might not mean as much as that sticky note that says, I love you. And so matching those acts of contribution to what your partner really receives is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And then there's a couple more elements of this concept of radical generosity, which we think are important. So one of them is appreciation for what you see. So, you know, it's great to do these radically generous acts, but it's also really important to catch your partner in the act of doing radically generous acts and saying a quick thank you. So this is the whole, you know, shifting the way we see our partner from everything they're doing wrong to the things they're doing right, offering a simple thank you. And then there's one final piece of this that we thought was really important in the book, which is just a simple practice of revealing as as a gift of radical generosity to the relationship when you feel misunderstood or when you have hurt feelings or, you know, when you're resentful. Because, I mean, radical generosity, contribution, appreciation, those are all great, but they're just those inevitable moments when every couple finds themselves, you know, somehow in some sort of an impasse. So the ability to reveal that quickly, to offer a simple request can be really powerful. And I think the last thing I would just say, there's this really cool example of how this shift to radical generosity becomes contagious that we experienced a couple of weeks ago. So we were about to go on television the next morning on national TV. We had never done that before. And we were practicing the night before. And I just completely like shanked the practice. It It was was really bad. Yeah. Like it was not good. And I was really stressed out. And I went to bed that night and Kaylee had put a post-it note on my nightstand just saying like, Hey, good luck. Let's have fun with this. And it was totally transformative. And then. So what was cool is that, I mean, really that sticky note probably took me 30 seconds to write, but I woke up the next morning to this beautiful card from Nate right? Same idea. Good luck. I love you. We're in this together. But my favorite part of the story is that our nine-year-old then sort of caught the radically generous spirit. And we both got handmade cards from her wishing us good luck in this project. So there's something about changing the world by changing your marriage and changing your marriage by doing one small act of generosity. You know, this really reminds me of that whole scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. A scarcity mindset says there's only so much of, of things. You know, there's only so much love I've got or energy I've got, or there's only, there's there's this limited amount of generosity I can have versus an abundance mindset that says that there is plenty of generosity I can have and, and only more love that I can have. You know, you talked about those shoes in the book and and I realized how many times I've heard people say, you know, they get into these long discussions and arguments that take hours, if not days, when it would have taken them 20 or 30 seconds just to do whatever it was to correct that situation. Now, as people hear that, you know, how long would it take to move those shoes? But people would say, but wait, that means it's all going to fall on me. I'm the one that's going to have to do that, you know, jumping back into scarcity. But I'm the one who's going to have to do everything. How, how do you address that? How do you get people to see that there is the abundance that we move into? 
Yeah. I love this frame of abundance versus scarcity. And also I think it's back to this mindset question that if a person says, Hey, wait a second, if I adopt this 80, 80 mindset of radical generosity, then I'm just going to be doing everything. But the thing is most likely you're doing the same things that you were doing before. The question is, are you, for instance, washing the dishes or are you, for instance, picking up those shoes from a mentality of resentment and scorekeeping, or are you washing that dish or picking up those shoes from that mentality? I love that you're describing of abundance or of generosity, that in some ways you're doing the same thing. The question is, are you creating suffering for yourself in the process? And how are you setting the tone for your partner as you do it? So if I you know, do it from a mentality of scarcity and resentment, I create suffering for myself and I set the stage for Nate to resent and score keep back. Versus if I do the same thing from abundance and generosity, that often gets contagious like our story. I think there's a second pretty pragmatic piece here though, which is in some relationships, it is true that there is one person who is more invested in improving or working on or developing that relationship and one person who is what we call the reluctant partner. And we notice that so frequently that we actually, we wrote a whole chapter about how to approach the reluctant partner. If I were going to distill it, I think one piece of it is you change your marriage by changing yourself. And the second piece of it is recognizing that Sometimes in this sort of scarcity mindset, or if it feels like you're trying to do more than your partner is, it's recognizing how you've probably unconsciously set it up that way. And there's a piece that, you know, drawing from our own relationship, I set it up again, unconsciously, but in the early days, it was like, I did everything. Talk about kind of that hangover of 80-20 where I was going to be this you know, super achieving wife and I was going to you know, keep the house and I was going to work full time and travel and I was going to be a super mom. And then of course I completely burned out, <laughs> but I set it up where I almost wouldn't let Nate do things that for me, it was actually about control that as long as I was doing everything, I controlled that they were being done right, again, right in quotations, but really it wasn't possible for us to stretch and be generous until I was willing to receive, until I was willing to let go of some of that micromanagement and control to let Nate show up in all of his generosity. Yeah, you know, I'm aware that whenever there's somebody that's controlling, that somebody else has to be controlled. And so there is this subconscious thing on both sides. And we, we know that control or being controlled always comes from fear. And sometimes the fear leads us to go, oh, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself to make sure that it's done right. Now, I'm also aware that at the beginning of a relationship, it's coming from a place of abundance because we're, everybody's trying to put everything in. You're trying to prove your love to this other person and love this way and that way and this way and that way. And then something shifts for you. And, and I'm wondering about the pivot point of where that shifted for you. Yeah, the, I think that that was the, the pivot. But there was also, I think, one thing that's important to name is, for us anyway, there was a cultural hangover of that 80-20 model that we started with that was invisibly and silently creeping into everything we did. So even though we were like, yeah, we're going to make everything 50-50 fair, we were working against the backdrop of that first model, which was inherently distorting our the structure of our lives and just 
to make that tangible. You know, when we were 24 years old, Kaylee was a full adult. She worked at Deloitte Consulting. She had her own apartment. She actually bought a, a condo, right? I, on the other hand, was at Princeton living in a graduate student dorm. I rarely cleaned it. I don't know. I don't think I had a credit card. So I wasn't a real adult. And as a result, we kind of just fell into this model by accident where Kaylee was the over-contributor. I was the under-contributor. And so that was kind of the, the cultural backdrop of our relationship. But then we also, on this kind of like intellectual level, believed in equality, wanted to be equals. So we were both working against the model of 50-50 itself, but we were also working against these invisible forces of 80-20. So there was a lot going on. It was very complicated. And I think it was crashing and burning essentially in light of those two models where we were just so marred down by this complexity and, and couldn't make it work. That was in the end, the pivot point that allowed us to look for some sort of alternative that, that we didn't find available. You know, what's interesting to me is you talk about the hangover of the 80-20 model and this past year, the pandemic, and what it has done is demonstrated that it's not just a hangover, we actually revert back to that, that if you look at statistics, we've gone back in many, many families to that 80-20 split uh, across gender lines where 80% of the efforts at home, taking care of the kids, doing the education, all is still falling on one person in the household. Yeah, you know, I find the statistics that are coming out in some ways are heartbreaking because I think that what we're seeing is that 80-20 invisible hangover that we can strive for something different. And when our lives get really compressed, really stressful, there's a pandemic, you can't leave, your children are learning at home, et cetera, et cetera. You sort of layer on all of the stressors. It It is, we're seeing it happen that it's breaking around older or more traditional lines. And what I think that can be a catalyst for is intentionality. That in some ways, if a couple sits down and they have a conversation and they say, golly, it is not working for us to do it the way that we were doing it before, something's got to give. And they, with choice, say, hey, are you willing to take a step back from your career for a period of time while we move through this pandemic and educate our kids, et cetera, et cetera, and they feel like a unified front, that's one thing. But when it's accidental, when it's sort of thrust upon the couple, that's where I think there's a real recipe for resentment down the road and for looking back with regret. So I, I think it's an interesting point to get really clear and sit down with your partner and say, how do we want to move through this as a team? rather than just accidentally falling into things that might look convenient in the moment, but that down the road create regret or resentment. Yeah, it just strikes me that the 80-80 model is way more egalitarian than even the 50-50 model by a long shot. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we like to say is the intention of 50-50 and fairness is good. You know, it's this intention of mm -hmm. equality. But what we experienced in our life and in all these interviews is that Often, by trying to make everything fair, you can actually exaggerate pre-existing inequalities. So, for example, for us, the more we tried to make things fair, the more Kaylee, you know, told me how I wasn't doing enough. The more, the less I wanted to do anything, the more unequal things became. And that really, there's a better way to achieve real and meaningful equality, which is, you know, in the second part of the book, we talk a lot about things like 
priorities and boundaries and structures of roles and power. So just to take power as an example, if you're looking for equality, balancing structures of power and removing asymmetries around who gets to decide certain big decisions or, you know, uh, spending patterns, money, how that shows up in relationships, really like that's a much more meaningful version of equality than just trying to keep score and make everything fair. Yeah, I've talked about this uh, attempt at equality as being the balance sheet marriage, you know, where each of you are kind of doing the balance sheet, keeping the balance sheet and counting down to see if everything is equal. And the problem with that is it uses mental accounting. And whenever it's mental accounting, I'm doing the counting on my in my end on my side mentally on what makes sense to me, not us doing the count, but me doing the count on what's important. Now, as I talk through that, I also am clear that, you know, as you know by the name of this podcast, Save the Marriage, that a lot of people are here because they're trying to save their marriage. And so you talk about having that reluctant spouse. What are some things that you can do as uh, the person who's trying to bring that reluctant spouse into this 80-80 model? Yeah, so... We like to say that hopefully there's something in 8080 for couples at all the different stages of relationships. So there's sort of something for the people who are brand new in love, who want to create the structure well from the beginning and sort of set that tenor for couples who are in a good place and want to grow and improve. And what you're describing for couples where they're finding themselves in trouble. One of the things that we think is really powerful is ensuring that it feels like an invitation into 8080 rather than sort of, I'm going to scold or nag you into 80-80, that if there's already a backdrop of resentment or scorekeeping or hurt, that there's a place to reveal what's going on. There's a place to shift your own mindset around contributing from radical generosity to potentially unwind some of those control patterns that we were talking about a little bit earlier but also to invite your partner into the dialogue. Hey, I really want to work on our connection. Hey, I think that we can grow closer or we can improve that. It's not, you know, Hey, you suck as a spouse and I'm going to tell you all the reasons why, but rather, you know, Hey, I think that there's an opportunity for us. And I think by creating that on-ramp to a conversation and having some tangible tools like contribution, like appreciation, like a way to reveal and request, like a life report card where you get to get really clear on what are your priorities and how do they align and where are you going to intentionally not do things so that you can prioritize the things that are most important. It helps couples who are in a rockier place feel like they have some tangible progress, that it isn't sort of a, an amorphous thing where it's like, hey, just be more generous. Cool, 80-80, see you later. <laughs> right? But there's a way that it can actually feel like I'm doing something different that's in service to us. When you're talking about the life report card, is that something that you would do together or is that something that you might get some benefit out of even if you're doing it alone? Yeah, that's an activity that you could do together. I mean, you each fill out your own life report card and ideally you would both do it because it can spur a really interesting conversation about, hey, what are our priorities? And more important, what are the things we should be doing less that we're doing out of obligation or for some other random reason? Like where can we fail more so that we can succeed more in the things that matter? So yeah, I think ideally you would both do that have a really interesting conversation about it. 
if you have a super reluctant partner who absolutely does not want to do it, I think it's still valuable. And as Kaylee has been saying, you know, even if you have a partner who doesn't want to have anything to do with this, just shifting your own mindset as an individual and doing mm-hmm. some of these practices as an individual, it can have that sort of like subconscious effect on the underlying culture of the relationship. Yeah. I also want to add some humility here that I think there are some really wonderful tools in 8080 for couples at all stages. And there's a moment in a relationship where it is really worth soliciting some help from someone outside your marriage. So whether that's a coach or a therapist or a rabbi or a pastor, that if there's a really dear friend who has some perspective, Mm -hmm. sometimes seeking help outside is really useful. And we like to say, you know, we still work with our own therapists. We find it really useful to keep everything sort of tuned up that you don't wait to service your car until it's, you know, ditched on the side of the road, that you change the oil and the tires, that having some tune-up skills is really useful, but also recognizing that, if you have a great therapist, 8080 can help you. And if you read 8080, sometimes a great therapist is still a really beneficial compliment. Yeah, I agree. That outside perspective can really change things for you uh, when you're at that stuck point or, or when you just want to keep growing. Now, you did make the good point that doing that uh, report card yourself can be very beneficial because you know, it makes a shift internally for you. And sometimes people will tell me, well, you, you can't do anything by yourself because, you know, it, it takes two to tango, to which I always know that somebody has to do the asking, right? Somebody has to start the dance and in this case can even change the dance. And, and as you say, that this can become contagious. Yeah. And I think as Kaylee was saying just a minute ago, the way you ask is so important because I was the reluctant partner for a long time in our relationship and if Kaylee came to me and said, hey, we need to go to this marriage retreat, we're a total disaster, you're free riding here, blah, 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 my response is going to be, no, I'm not going to that marriage retreat. That sounds awful. No, you're trying thanks. to control me again. You're right. trying to control me. <laughs> or like, I'm going to take you to therapist to prove how wrong and bad you are and right. how right yeah. and good I am. Like, whereas <laughs> whereas if, if that ask shifts to something that's coming from a genuine place of kindness and like, hey... I just, I want us to be happy together and I want us to live the best life we can live together. Would you be open to this? Even the most reluctant partner may say yes, you know? So so a lot of it I think is about like, how are you making the ask? What's your underlying motivation and mindset? Mm -hmm. And the more work you can do on cleaning up that mindset, I think the more progress you can have there. As I was flipping through your book, I saw this whole chapter you have on boundaries. And sometimes when I bring up this whole issue of boundaries, because I have a whole chapter in it in uh, my program, but when I bring it up to people, they say, what, what are you talking about? Why are boundaries so important? If what you're trying to do is create a we, why do I have to be clear about boundaries? And I think boundaries is such a fundamental foundational piece that everybody needs to have. I would love it if you would talk some about why it's so important for an 80-80 marriage to have clear boundaries. Yeah. So We like to say that priorities and boundaries in many respects are flip sides of the same coin. That if priorities are the things that you say yes to, boundaries are what you're saying no to. And you don't actually have a true yes unless there's something else that you're willing to say no to in order to honor that yes. And so boundaries will show up. I actually had one just this week that I was talking with Nate about where I was invited into this group that I thought would be so great And I looked at my priorities and I thought, 
for me to do that, I'm going to have to compromise on my true priorities. And writing the email that said, I think this sounds fun and interesting and engaging and no thank you was really significant because it meant that I get to live the things that are actually most important to me. I don't know um, if you have this same experience, but we also find that there's often sort of one or two people or projects that are the most boundary pushing, that there's sort of the one person or one project that keeps checking to see if your boundary is real. So sometimes that's, you know, a parent or an in-law, sometimes that's a best friend, sometimes that's a work project, but there's something that sort of is always crowding in on, like, are you actually committed to those things that you say you're committed to? Because I'd be happy to determine your priorities for you instead. (laughs) And so that's where we really see this power um, relationship of the yes and no, the priority and the boundary. And I think that may be the place where 80-20 actually does fork, you know, where 20% of your problems create 80% of the struggle and 80% of the effort goes into dealing with those 20%. Yes. You know, I realized I just said flip, like I was flipping through your book. And I don't want to leave the impression that that's all I did uh, because I get lots of books. People send me lots of books on relationships and there are lots of them that I just set aside. I, I maybe flip really, truly just flip through. There are not many that I actually go through. Yours I actually sat down and read because it was such important stuff. And it's so similar to what I talk about. We're, we're talking on the same wavelength, different words, but same wavelength. And, and so I wanted to make sure that I'm clear that this was a book that I valued and found to be important enough to spend the time uh, to read through it. I just wanted to be clear with that for any listener. And I wanted to ask you to go a little more in depth about what do you do with that resistant spouse, the one that maybe, you know, you really are finding yourself doing maybe 80% of the effort of the relationship and the other person's, you know, maybe even 20% or less than that. How can you uh, manage your own sense of frustration with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really important question. And I also just wanted to acknowledge, thank you for that compliment. That yes. was very gracious of you. And it's so great that our thinking is really complimentary. And, and so that's just really fun to experience that. Um, but yeah, in terms of this, the reluctant partner issue, um, you know, I, one of the things I would say, this is just sort of out of our own experience, because again, we lived this where I was the under contributor Kaylee was the over-contributor. And many times, like the ask isn't clear. And we've talked about how making a clear ask and doing it in the right way is important. But sometimes it's also making the right ask. If you only have a couple asks as the over-contributing partner, like making the ask that's really going to, to count and solve the primary problem that you're facing. And so I know for many partners right now on the over-contributing side, the real issue is about I'm doing everything. I'm doing all the childcare. I'm doing most of the housework. You're sitting around watching Netflix and you know binging seasons of Breaking Bad, and it's not fair, right? And so if that's the issue, something like that, one of the things we did, um, gosh, I don't even know how long ago, seven years ago or so, as we sat down and Kaylee said some version of, I really do feel like I'm carrying a disproportionate amount of the burden of this relationship. And so we just had two pieces of paper. We wrote down everything that I was doing in terms of household contribution. Kaylee wrote down everything she was doing. 
it was quite interesting to look at those two lists for me, definitely illuminating being like, wow, you're right. You know, we went from just this vague suspicion to actual tangible data. And then what was really cool is we had a chance to think about, okay, if we were to look at this from an outsider's perspective and take a step back and just think about like, what is the best construction of our roles together? What would we do? And, and so we completely rearranged how we structured our life. And it was a huge moment. I think a pivotal moment in our relationship where we started to unwind some of that inequality. This is also, we have this practice in the book. It's, it's part of the roles chapter, but you don't even need the book really. You need two pieces of paper, write out your list and then come up with a more intentional structure. So something like that can be very powerful. You may have a different friction point as that 80-20 partner. And so, you know, then you want to tail your ass to whatever that other friction point might be. There's a complementary piece in this rules that I want to be really careful is that when you look at those two sheets of paper, I think there could be a temptation to be like, cool, we're going to make both sheets of paper perfectly equal. And that's how it's going to, you know, we're going to balance it, which is actually a relic of fairness that the idea instead is not to make sure that it's perfectly, you know, equal numbers of things on each piece of paper, but rather to take a step back and say, what are you good at? What do you enjoy? What do you like? And there was this beautiful story where uh, I think it was Jenny Mansbridge was talking about having a child. And she is this incredible feminist, brilliant professor at Harvard. And she was like, you know, that my husband asked, do you want to, you know, finish dinner? Do you want to change the baby? And she was like, forget fairness. I want to spend this extra time with my child. And so again, it isn't in that now make your lists exactly even, but rather to say, what's the construction where we feel like we really win together? Yeah, I was just chuckling as you, you're talking about, you know, when, when you ask them what they're good at and they say, well, Netflix binging and, and watching Breaking Bad. I'm I've got that one down. I could take it down that one. So, so what you're trying to do really, though, is break that 50-50 mold, you know, really come to a place where you realize that the 50-50 mold does not bring equality and you do something different. You bring something new into it. Yes. I'm sure you're familiar with Brene Brown's idea of that 100%. You know, it's the 100% marriage where if maybe I come home on a day and I've, I've had a hard day working and I, you know, I don't have 100%. I don't have the 80% to give. I have you know, 20%. And so the question is, what do you have? And, and so if between them, according to Brene, if both she and her husband come in and they give their numbers and they add up to 100 or more, they're great. If it's below 100, though, they have to play defense. So you know, if one's had a hard day, the other's had a hard day, so they got 30% and 30%, it doesn't add up to uh, 100. So it's time for them to problem solve and get to a better place. And so that's their way of dealing with that piece. Yeah. Yeah, we love that quote from Brene Brown. I first heard it on a Tim Ferriss podcast, and I, I really resonate with that idea. And in a way, I think of what she's saying, you know, this idea of you come home and if you're totally exhausted, you say to your spouse, I've only got 20%. I'm so sorry. I think of that as a reveal, which is part of what we were talking about with radical generosity, that it is radically generous to reveal that to your spouse so that they can be calibrated to where you're at. I think the alternative, which is sort of like the default for many of us, is we have that awful hard day at work and we just expect our spouse to magically know 
that we had such a hard day and to greet us with a huge hug and, you know, to make dinner that night. And then they don't do it or they give us like a marginal hug and we're mad at them and but we might not say anything about it. And then we get passive aggressive. Right. So there's a there's a way in which what she's articulating there, I think, is just a brilliant example of just a very simple reveal. Hey, this is where I'm at. Mm. And then we can kind of calibrate our energy together and we can we can both be generous and and meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I have a feeling that Brene would say that not saying that really is about our shame, right? That when we aren't willing to say when we're low, it's because of our own sense of shame. We we want to be seen as the person who has it together. And so if we were to reveal that, it's uh, something that would feel shameful. And so one way of covering that shame is to not share that piece. Yeah. And I think that part of what you're describing too is when there is that emotional tenor as the backdrop of your relationship, where there is contribution, there is appreciation, there is revealing, there's in some ways a bit of a softer landing that if you're really like you've got nothing in the tank for days and weeks on end, that's when it starts to be a point of different conversation. Whereas if you're living 80-80, when one partner comes home, they're like, man, I do not have it. It is an invitation where you get to show up out of love as a gift to both of you as a couple, rather than as like, oh, it's because you're the wimpy one in the, you know, in the partnership. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Wow, great conversation. So much more in this book and so much more we could talk about, but we're going to run out of time. I mean, you've got stuff in the book about potholes and sinkholes. These are the places that we can really get stuck, really can fall into, you know, either stumble over that pothole or really fall into the sinkhole and how to avoid those things. And, you know, I think that so much of what people think is there's just not much they could do. How could they possibly do something on their own, not realizing how much of that we thinking I talk about and and the kind of the generosity thinking you talk about happens internally in our own head. It's not a change that has to come at the same time, a spouse doesn't have to be co-thinking that. You can do that on your own. So much more in this book. I really think this is a great book for people to read, either by themselves if they've got a reluctant uh, spouse or together with a spouse to really uh, figure out some ways of moving forward into a new model of marriage. So, Kaylee, Nate, what's the best way that people can uh, find this book? Where can they go to find out how to get more information and find this book? Yeah, absolutely. So 8080marriage.com, that's 8080marriage.com is our website. We have information there on where to get the book. You can also get it at most major booksellers. We also do a weekly newsletter that's totally free that has tips and strategies for how to deal with the complexities of modern marriage. And then Instagram, Facebook at 8080. That's pretty much where we're at. There you have it. The easy way to find it, 8080marriage.com. That's 8080marriage.com, the 8080marriage.com. Uh, it's a great place to find more about them. Or, you know, if you'd rather, just go straight to your bookstore or straight to your pl- favorite place to get your books and grab it there. But do go to their website and sign up for their newsletter. I think you're going to find a lot of commonalities between what they talk about, what I talk about, and how they fit so nicely together. Kaylee, Nate, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Lee. Really appreciate it, Lee. Well, that wraps up our show. Great interview, great information for you. If you've been trying to figure out what's wrong with the model, you're trying to get to that place where it's an egalitarian relationship and it's still a struggle, it may be part of the reason that you're in the struggle you're in. And we want to get you beyond that. I want to do that. With my system, you can find some help on how to connect. With their 8080 marriage book, you can find out why that model got you into trouble and what to do just about that whole marriage uh, model to get you back on the right track. 
back. So remember to check them out at 8080marriage.com. That's 8080marriage.com. And then, of course, check me out at savethemarriage.com. That's savethemarriage.com. This is Lee Balkum wishing you the best as you work to save your marriage. You've been listening to Save the Marriage Podcast. For more information and help, please visit us at savethemarriage.com. Thank you.